from KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. I'm reporter Hannah Mersbach. Coming up on today's show, one of Jackson's local legends, Rob Kingwell, talks about his journey to becoming a pro snowboarder growing up in the region. We dropped into uh, Breakneck off Powder 8 Face. My friends and I in high school were just like, is this how we get down? And we rode some pretty insane lines there. Plus, a discovery about the Basque language is causing a lot of excitement nearby in Idaho. I have a lot of family and friends in the Basque country. I live there and my phone blew up. I mean, everybody was just ecstatic. But first, we go out in the field. Across the West, Bighorn sheep are at risk of catching pneumonia. The illness can kill off herds and throw off entire ecosystems. Wyoming researchers are currently monitoring a Jackson herd, and they're taking to the air to look after the health of the sheep. We went out on one of those captures. A helicopter flies above the snowy open hills in the Grovant Wilderness in Teton County. Researchers like Allison Cordemanche are capturing big horned sheep. This time of year, they should be in their best body condition coming out of the summer and the fall. She's one of the many researchers with the Wyoming Game and Fish Department out here on this frigid winter morning. Pilots are tracking down nearby sheep, which have GPS collars. Crew shoot down a net And one member called a mugger jumps out of the helicopter, binds a bighorn's legs together, and blindfolds it. Cordemanche says this keeps the sheep relatively calm as it dangles on a rope below the helicopter. It's flown back to the researchers in hills nearby, where they take measurements before releasing the sheep back to the wild. So we're looking at the amount of fat that they have on their body to get an idea of how well they did through the summer. Cordemanche and other biologists gather this data before and after the winter to see how the habitat is impacting the Jackson herd. 611, 3430. First we put it on the scale so we can get body weight and then bring it over to be processed on the mat. That's Ben Regan, a research scientist holding down one of the squirming female sheep. And we start off by getting a temperature and that way we can see if the sheep is hot, if the, if the chase time might have been a little bit longer. As the helicopter flies overhead, Regan uses an ultrasound to measure fat on the sheep. Then he checks to see if she's lactating, to see if she has a lamb. Next comes the tonsil and nasal swabs. Basically, we're able to look at what pathogens they have that might possibly lead to uh, pneumonia, which is a big disease that affects wild sheep in the West. There used to be about 2 million bighorn sheep in North America. The National Wildlife Federation says now there are less than 100,000 of them. Cordemanche says this is largely due to pneumonia, which was introduced by domestic sheep. Wildlife scientist Kevin Monteith is with the University of Wyoming. He says die-offs from pneumonia happen when the population is reaching its carrying capacity in the local habitat. When we reach those, those high levels of abundance, That can be tied to animals that are competing for food, which means poor nutritional condition, which means kind of one more layer that they're contending with when you add their efforts to contend with pathogens at the same time. The last herd die-off was a decade ago, and the researchers worry it's due for another. Recently, the herd had over 500 sheep, a high for the group. 
So in the fall, the Game and Fish Department issued limited hunting permits for the female sheep for the first time. Researchers predict that by reducing the population, the herd will become healthier with more food to go around, and they'll be able to fight off the illness. And so this population is very large right now. It's near that historic abundance where we often see those, those crashes. And so we've been sort of waiting, wondering if we're going to see it and if we're going to actually observe that. At the recent Jackson capture, the researchers didn't sound the alarm, but they are seeing red flags. More lambs have been dying of pneumonia, and the sheep have slightly lower levels of body fat, which has been on the decline for the last few years. Monteith says it's still too soon to know if reducing the herd has had any impact. The reality is it just simply takes time. But this herd is thriving compared to another group of bighorns that traverses cliffs nearby in the Tetons. Those sheep have received heightened attention in recent years as development restricts migration patterns, which some environmentalists say is threatening their health. Allison Cordemanche with the Game and Fish Department manages both the Jackson and the Teton herd. You have one herd that's almost doing too well and that we need to kind of reduce the population numbers. And then we have another herd like the Tetons that's struggling and not doing very well. So we do very different management depending on, you know, what's going on with that specific population. Researchers will reassess the population of the Jackson herd in February and then decide if they should issue even more hunting permits. But today, the captured bighorn sheep get to return to the wild. So we're about to release them back onto the hillside. The biologists carry a female sheep over to the nearby hill, remove her blindfold, and untie her legs. And within a few seconds, she takes off through the snow, ready to brave the winter ahead. Wyoming's state legislative session kicked off this week, and the Jackson Town Council is prepared. Council members hired their first legislative advisor, Andy Schwartz, to help the town get its voice heard on the state level. Schwartz represented Teton County's House District 23 for eight years and just retired from the role. Now, he heads back to Cheyenne. We sat down with Schwartz to discuss what some of the town's top priorities are this legislative session, and he says property tax relief is number one. Citizens are just being hit with incredible rises in home value. They're consequently paying more taxes. It's causing exodus of longtime residents. It's making it harder to bring people in. I would put that at the top of the list. Other things are smaller issues. For instance, um, HOV lanes. There's a bill about allowing YDOT to, to enforce HOV lanes, which would be new, which is something both the town and the county are, are very interested in. There's a number of other taxation issues they're paying attention to. As always, there are a number of liquor bills um, because... We always have liquor bills. And I know our town and county, we usually swing Democrat. And I imagine it's challenging to have our voices heard in this legislature. How do you overcome those obstacles? So that is the common wisdom, that because we are both Teton County, which is 
very different than the other 22 counties in the state, and we have a primarily Democratic uh, delegation, that we have a problem being heard. I think I was able to deal with that issue pretty effectively in my eight years down there, partly by you can't be always emphasizing your own issue. And by learning how to work with the other legislators on their issues, they are then more inclined to work with you on your issues. And I know this session is a little bit different. We opened with this really divided Republican Party. How do you think that's going to impact the work being done in Cheyenne? I am hesitant to put too much emphasis on the divisions in the Republican Party. I know they exist. I think it is to be determined how that will play out. I think what's more significant is that in and, and the House of Representatives, I know much better than the Senate. There are 27 new members of the House with no legislative experience. That, to me, is going to be more interesting to see because most of them align themselves with the far right, how they react to their role as a legislator because there will be somewhere between 400 and 500 bills and the bulk of them will not be based on ideology. They are, they are going to be related to governance and we'll just see how that goes. So you were there in Cheyenne representing this district for eight years. Can you tell me some of the reasons why you stepped down? It was a number of reasons. Partly it was personal, um, just to have more time to spend with my family, which is the stock politician line. But there's some truth to that. Part of it was um, a feeling that it— the legislature was becoming less collegial. Clearly in my eight years, specifically in the last two years, it just wasn't as much fun. And part of that was the increase in, uh, they call themselves the Freedom Caucus. And they aren't, it was just changing the nature of the legislature. And I figured I'd had enough. Looking back on your time in the legislature, what stands out to you? What are you most proud of during your time there? For six of my eight years, I was on the Appropriations Committee. And the things that happen on the Appropriations Committee, you don't get your name on a bill. It's the budget bill. Um, and how you get things into that budget are under the radar. I think I did a good job in promoting funding going to human services, which during my 12 years as a county commissioner was a priority, and it was a priority when I was in Cheyenne. I feel pretty good about that. If I could point to one, I mean, there was this issue with one of the retirement uh, systems. It was called Fire A, and there it's, it's a closed system. There's about 270 current fire retirees getting that pension, and it was on track to go broke in 2027. And I got $75 million to stabilize that fund. And to me, making sure that 270 firemen can sleep at night was a pretty big deal. You are now the legislative advisor for Jackson. How does this represent a shift in how the town tries to get its, get its voice heard on the state level? 
That's an interesting question because I think partly it's to be determined because they really haven't had a person in this role before. I think there's two parts to it. One part will be being in Cheyenne and representing the town of Jackson on the bills that they consider priorities. But I think the other component is working with the council to prevent problems from occurring in the first place so that they're aware of how they are perceived in Cheyenne, how their actions will be perceived around the state, um, and making sure they're doing it in a way that they can make their positions clear ahead of time. So I think the ideal is to be proactive instead of reactive to what's happening down in Cheyenne. That was Andy Schwartz, Jackson's new legislative advisor and a former state representative. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL. I'm reporter Hannah Mersbach, and this is our podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop most Fridays on the Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up next, many people in our region have Basque heritage. Their relatives came here decades ago from the mountains in France and Spain, mainly to work as shepherds. Now, a new discovery about the Basque language has rocked this community in the West and across the world. Boise State Public Radio's Julie Laqueta reports for the Mountain West News Bureau. It was found in the ruins of a castle in Pamplona in the heart of Basque country. The artifact is an engraved bronze hand turned bluish-green through oxidation. There are five words etched into it, one of which is recognizable to modern Basque speakers. That word is sorioneku, um, which would translate roughly as of good fortune or of good omen. How do you pronounce your name in Basque? In Basque, Edurne Arostegui. Arostegui is the education specialist at the Basque Museum in Boise. She says the discovery of the hand, called Mano de Irulegi, has brought a ton of joy and pride to the community. I have a lot of family and friends in the Basque country. I live there, and my phone blew up. I mean, everybody was just ecstatic. They're ecstatic because the hand is the oldest example of written Basque ever found. It dates back to 72 years before Christ, proving modern Basque ancestors lived in the region almost a thousand years earlier than previously thought. And it's one more clue in understanding the history of the Basque language. I think most people would think it's some kind of mixture of Spanish and French, but it predates into European languages. I am John Beter. I'm a professor in the history department at Boise State and study Basque immigration. Beter explains Basque is indigenous and a language isolate, meaning it evolved without any influence from other languages. Basque speakers were long thought to be illiterate. What it does is it takes our, our idea of early languages and sometimes early civilizations as being this kind of caveman or kind of right early rudimentary language that are very simple, and it just dumps it on its head. Scholars have tried to link Basque to Hungarian, Georgian, Etruscan, and even Japanese, but are still baffled by it. Es un misterio. 
Professor Javier Velasa says the origin of the language is a mystery. He is one of the linguists analyzing the writing on the hand. Speaking from his office in Barcelona, he says the word etched into it is the first example of written Basque found in modern-day Basque country, which is actually not a nation-state, but exists inside both northern Spain and parts of southern France. DNA studies have suggested Basques are descendants of Neolithic farmers whose identity survived the back-and-forth of territorial aggression from European invaders over millennia. Arostegui again. The word that we have for ourselves is the people who have Basque, in other words, the people who speak Basques. During the Franco dictatorship, the Basque language was criminalized. So from 1939 to 1975, you could not use it in public. You would be fined. You couldn't name your children. My name would have been illegal, right? You could not name your child Edurne. It was kept alive in remote villages and inside people's homes, spoken in secret and taught to children clandestinely in church basements. I always point out that it's thanks to the diaspora that a lot of these elements are still around because no one ever banned Basque here in Boise. There are about 3 million Basque people in the original Basque region and no clear numbers for the diaspora. It's thought that about a third of Basque people speak it today or around three quarters to a million people around the world. Idaho has one of the largest concentrations of Basques in the U.S. Back in Spain, Velasa says he's not surprised by the public's reaction because the object itself is iconic and the message it carries is one of warmth. And Basque Twitter, yes, that's a thing, has been putting out memes left and right. The hand has been blowing up WhatsApp threads and a song about it on YouTube has already gotten 50,000 views. Could you imagine seeing a hieroglyphic and just being able to read it from your present language? Like that is how it felt for me. Just connecting to somebody 2,000 years ago is a once in a lifetime sort of moment. The hand is still being analyzed and will likely go on display at the Pamplona Museum sometime in the future. Julie Duqueta, Boise State Public Radio News. Longtime Jackson resident Rob Kingwell is a snowboarding legend. He's a former United States snowboard team member, and he's racked up over 30 World Cup podiums. Kingwell is also an entrepreneur. He runs Avalon 7, which makes neck gaiters, goggle shields, and hats, all designed by mountain artists. Kingwell recently spoke with KHOL music director Jack Catlin and reflects on 40 years of snowboarding in Jackson. Why? Well, number one, Jackson Hole never closed its doors to snowboarding. And so back in 1987, they were letting us on the lifts as long as we had a, had retention devices on our, on our boards. And uh, I think this place is really special because there's no other place in the world I've ever found with such continuous vertical, such easy access, both through the resort at Jackson Hole Mountain Resort and, you know, Targi and all that stuff, as far as like getting into almost any kind of terrain you could ever imagine. You can always push yourself to that next level at Jackson Hole from being a beginner, intermediate, and there's always another step forward here. And then as far as the community, like I have always just really supported how much community sport I got. I was on the U.S. snowboard team for eight years and was traveling around the world, chasing World Cups and doing big contests. And I could always come home and just have people be like, hey, how's the contest tour going? And just feel like the community really supported that idea and 
endeavor to be a pro snowboarder. And that's a really beautiful thing. It still you know, has that small town atmosphere where people really believe in the, the people going out and doing great things. So you grew up and have been around Jackson Hole since you were a wee lad. What are your thoughts on how much this area has changed since you were a kid? Jackson's definitely changed, but I don't think I would change it back to the way it was. You know, my family moved here in 1980. I grew up on Snow King, grew up going on Teton Pass when the peeps were analog and you just heard the little beep and didn't really know what was going on. We went into the backcountry. I remember like I was probably 13 or 14 when we were like, we dropped into uh, breakneck off Powder 8 Face. My friends and I in high school were just like, is this how we get down? And we rode some pretty insane lines there. And so like it's now the access is open at the resort, uh, which is absolutely incredible. You know, we're here at the Center for the Arts, the resources that we have from people coming into town and really supporting the arts. I'm a big fan of the arts. My sister works over at Dancers Workshop and my dad's an artist. You know, we've been a big part of the arts for a long time here. So to have that available here, I just think it just gets better. You know, the Kemmerer family's really invested in like making Jackson Hole Mountain Resort truly a world-class place and it truly is. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, to ride that new tram, they just put in the new Thunderlift. It's just incredible because as a kid, the Thunderlift was just a double and it was Mm -hmm. freezing and it went like (laughs) two miles per hour. And to get on that, like last week when they opened it up and just like, oh my gosh, we're going so fast. You know, it's just so cool to have that type of investment from the family over there at the cameras and just like the town's cool. There's just lots of stuff to do. When I, in the eighties, there was nothing to do here, especially <laughs> in the off season, you know, and now it's like, it's got a lot of the things that you would find in a big city, but still has the small town vibe and the mountains that are unparalleled. So your passion knows no bounds. And you've dedicated your life to snowboarding. In fact, many describe you as a snowboarder's snowboarder. I want to know what that means to you and how do you keep the stoke so alive year after year, Rob? Snowboarding is the center star in the constellation of my life. And uh, it's always been something that really I truly have been passionate about. It gives me so much joy to be able to connect with the mountains and to have so much power under your feet to slide down the hill. There is something, you know, you can get burnt out, especially if you're pushing it on pro level a lot where you like start doing it either for the money. You're like, how much money am I getting paid to try and kill myself today is kind of where you get to. And so in the evolution, 30 years later, being a pro snowboarder, uh, you know why you do it. You know, for me, it's to inspire other people to be out in the outdoors and to have those feelings that I feel. Um, I think it really makes people better decision makers and more connected and calmer. Um, I always tell, you know, my family that it's like I I meditate all day long by turning left and right on my snowboard. Mm -hmm. It's just a beautiful thing. So I'm very kind of balanced and centered and happy a lot of the time, especially when snowboard season comes around. And then the other main thing that drives me is getting to ride with kids. And kids still have that connection to that stoke, that fire that they want to progress. And they're like, you know, this is awesome. And they're just... Every time I look and I'm like, you know, you're right. (laughs) And you pick that up and it just carries so easily into my value system. And then you spread that out to the rest of the world. And I think that just from a hedonistic, I ride my snowboard every day. You know, I hope in some ways that stoke and that joy spreads itself out into the world. And more people can either do it through riding or finding whatever art it is that makes them happy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, bring some light to the world in our own individual ways. That was Rob Kingwell, a local snowboarder and entrepreneur. That's it for today on Jackson Unpacked. 
Original music for the show is performed by the local band Strumbucket. I'm Hannah Mersbach, and this is KHOL Jackson. Jackson.